Good morning and welcome to Let's Talk Wyoming. I'm Mark Hamilton, your host. And today we'll take a look at, yes, we do have winter weather again. Seems like a broken record. Also, we'll take a look at Easter and what the meaning is of Easter. We'll take a look at some quick facts for the Hot Springs State Park here in Hot Springs County, Wyoming. And finally, we'll look at how the tribe sold the hot springs. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy the show. Taking a look at Wyoming weather here today on the fourth day of April. Looking out the window here in the office. Can't see very far. We are in the middle of a major snowstorm. We have gotten about four to five inches of snow overnight. We were forecast to have snow yesterday. It didn't really develop much until uh, over the night here in Hot Springs County. I did see a report that in Natrona County in Casper area, they had over two foot of snow. They're in a blizzard uh, warning, I guess. No longer a warning after you got two foot of snow on the ground. But um, it looks like it's going to be this way through the day. It looks like it's going to clear out starting tomorrow. I did see the Easter weather looks pretty nice here. And looking at a lot of the long-range forecasts, it looks like that we are going to get a little warm-up. This is going to be a real welcome warm-up. I saw 60 degrees next week, which will feel just absolutely great to everyone. The one people that are being affected by this weather here in our state, of course, we've got our livestock producers. These storms are just hard on all this young animals, These you know, the calving and, and lambing operations that are going on. The other thing that's been affected here in the state of Wyoming, there's been a lot of wildlife starvation, a lot of bad numbers that's been reported on the amount of deer and antelope and such that have, have died due to the lack of access to any type of food. I know that the governor here has met with people in Pinedale and other areas about the loss of the, the mule deer population. It'll have a major impact on our hunting next year, but uh, they've had a really tough uh, winter. And again, with the weather, it's affected a lot of people. But right here in the Bighorn Basin, it's affected the farming community with these snows and temperatures and stuff. They haven't really been able to get out in the field and do anything. Usually by this time, they've been out working fields, and, and sometimes people might be at the point of having or in the process of planting malt barley. But right now, it looks like it's going to be another week at least before everybody's going to get out and get active. So a lot of people have been affected by the weather, but it looks like that coming next week, we are going to start warming up. And here in the future, it looks like these storms will just slowly but surely turn into rainstorms instead of all this snow. Another great thing about the week ahead, this is Holy Week. Last Sunday was Palm Sunday, and coming up this Sunday will be Easter Sunday, the celebration of Jesus rising from the dead. And it's definitely an important time in our country right now with everything that's going on. With a week like this in front of us, we had a week ago, we had the shooting of the students and the, and the teachers at the Christian school in Nashville. And it is definitely a time in our country where we definitely need, in my opinion, to turn back to God. And what a better way of this week in front of us. And reading from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16, When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene brought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, 
They were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb? When they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go tell his disciples and Peter, He is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone, because they were afraid. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had driven seven demons. He went and told those who had been with him, and who were mourning and weeping. When they heard that Jesus was alive, and that she had seen him, they did not believe it. Afterwards, Jesus appeared in a different form to two of them while they were walking in the country. These returned and reported it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, Jesus appeared to the eleven as they were eating. He rebuked them for their lack of faith, for their stubborn refusal to believe those who had seen him after he had risen. He said to them, Go into all the world and preach the good news to all the creation. Whoever believes and is baptized will be saved, but whoever does not believe will be condemned. And those signs will accompany those who believe in thy name, and they will drive out the demons. They will speak in new tongues. They will pick up snakes high with their hands, and when they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them at all. They will place their hands on sick people, and they will go well. After the Lord Jesus had spoken to them, he was taken into the heaven and sat at the right hand of God. There the disciples went out and preached everywhere, and the Lord worked with them and confirmed his word by the signs that accompanied it. Today we're going to start taking a look at parts of our state to come visit this summer, this spring. And you can actually come any time of year, but most of the time when most of our out-of-state visitors come is when spring arrives and we get into summer. And we want to take a look at some of the areas. And I know last year in our podcast we've talked about some of these, but we always like to continue reinforcing some of the areas. And one of the areas where I live here in Hot Springs County is our Hot Springs State Park. This is an outstanding area. And did talk about Hot Springs County, Thermopolis here, the town here, the county seat in Hot Springs County and what we have to offer. And I ran across some quick facts for the Hot Springs State Park. And John McLaughlin was sent by the Indian Commission to negotiate a treaty for the purchase of the Bighorn Hot Springs for the purpose of setting aside an area for national park or reserve and homesteads. The treaty was signed in 1896 that secured 10 square miles to the U.S. government for $60,000 to be paid over a six-year period in cash, cattle, bacon, sugar, and coffee. Chief Washkey of the Shoshone Indians was the first to sign the treaty. Chief Sharpnose of the Rappo Indians was the second to sign the treaty. Then alternating Indians from both tribes signed the treaty. The treaty was ratified in 1897, one square mile around the spring was given to the state. Originally named Hot Springs State Reserve in 1899, it officially became Hot Springs State Park in 1929. Big Springs makes up the park is just under 2.7 million a day comes out of the Big Springs. 
underground flow from the Owl Creek Mountain filters through the formations where it is heated by volcanic gases in the earth. Surfaces at a temperature of 127 to 129 degrees Fahrenheit. The terraces here in the state park are thousands of years of formations. They are chiefly lime and gypsum in composition known as trevitine. Culling is due to the 25 species of algae that thrive in the hot water. Calcium and sulfur are the greatest components in the mineral water here. And part of what makes up the park is the Monument Hill. Monuments were erected on top of this hill by those who felt that the mineral water helped them with their medical conditions. Smoky Row are the 600 people that lived in the Bighorn Hot Springs area in 1894. Timber for the houses was scarce, so six dugouts, cave-like living structures, were built. People approaching from the east saw smoke rising from these dugouts. This was the first sign of habitation, and so the name Smoky Row was given to the area. Smoky Row Cemetery today there are seven graves at the cemetery. Mr. Ralph Carinaro's original headstone still stands. He died with a heart ailment. He was warned to cool his water before taking a bath. His failure to do so resulted in his death. His coffin was made out of his wagon. There's also a bison herd, and it originally was established in 1916 with 15 cows from Kansas City and one bull from Yellowstone. In 1973, the Grace Warner family donated the Spearhead brand in 98 cow bison. In 1899, there were only 151 bison left nationwide. That was down from the estimated 250 million that once roamed our country. Also in the park is the bathhouse. This is the third version. The first one was built in 1902. The second was built in 1921, and this latest bathhouse was completed in 1966. Also, Feather Fountain in 1984, represents the gift of the waters with Chief Washkey with a peace pipe and Chief Sharpnose with a buffalo horn of water symbolizing the transfer of hot springs to the government. Also, the Swinging Bridge was built in 1916 and was rebuilt by the Army Corps of Engineers in 1992. And the bathhouse that makes up the park here, interesting fact on that, that is a free bathhouse. That was part of one of the stipulations that the tribes had that that had to be access to everyone and it had to be free. So when you are in the Hot Springs State Park, stop by the state bathhouse and you can go in and soak in the mineral water to help relieve those muscles. One note on that, you're limited on your time. You can actually be in the bathhouse. Just another note, we'll cover that in a little bit more detail in our next story, the tribes sell the hot springs. Since we've been talking about the hot springs today, I want to go to an article from wildhistory.org when the tribe sold the hot springs. By the 1890s, the Eastern Shoshone tribe had been living on its reservation in the Wind River Valley for more than two decades. Under its treaty with the U.S. government, the Northern Arapaho, in a supposedly temporary arrangement, had been living there more than a decade. With the buffalo long gone, Government food rations, uncertain and measles, diphtheria, and other diseases on the rise, the tribe came under steadily increasing pressure to start selling off reservation lands. The Eastern Shoshone had signed a treaty with the government in 1863 that allocated to the tribe an area on both sides of the Continental Divide of around 40 million acres. Just five years later, the tribe signed a treaty establishing a new reservation in the warm, Valley of Wind River, or just 3.2 million acres. Four years after that, they signed away the southern third 
or so of the new reservation under pressure from the U.S. and Wyoming territorial governments, representing the interests of gold miners around South Pass and the merchants and farmers of the new town of Lander had sprung up to serve the miners' needs. In 1878, the U.S. Army escorted the northern Arapaho, 950 or so people, to the Wind River Valley. The government had promised the tribe a reservation of their own, but a location to be named later. In a treaty signed at Fort Laramie in 1868, no reservation had materialized. Buffeted by wars and the dwindling buffalo economy, the Arapaho were nearly destitute when they arrived on the Wind River. By 1885, the buffalo had disappeared entirely from the Wind River Valley, but for a few hundred head, entirely from the west, due in part to graft, the food rations, and other supplies that both tribes drew at the Shoshone Agency, according to their treaty agreements, continued to dwindle. Shoshone and Arapaho alike, Captain William Quinton wrote to the Secretary of War in 1889, were in a state of semi-starvation. Individuals by then were receiving about a pound of beef and 10 ounces of flour per week. By 1890s, these amounts were down to 14 ounces of beef and 8 ounces of flour. In 1887, Congress passed the Dawes General Allotment Act, setting up a framework for dividing up tribal lands on reservation into plots to be held by individual Indian owners, after which they could be leased or sold to anyone. Critics saw it as a method clearly intended to transfer lands out of the Indians' hands. Many northern Arapaho men had gone to war in the mid-1870s as scouts for General George Crook in his campaign against the Lakota Sioux. A decade later, they still saw Crook as a friend and ally, and clung to the hope that he would find them a reservation perhaps on Tongue River in northern Wyoming and southern Montana territories. They also knew Shoshone Chief Washke was pressing government officials to move them away from Wind River. After Crook died unexpectedly in 1890, both tribes were more willing to bend to government pressure to begin selling off reservation lands. In 1891, both tribes met with a three-member government commission to begin negotiations. Arapaho leaders saw land sales as a way to obtain money and services, as well as government recognition that they had a right to be located where they were. Shoshone leaders directly challenged the Arapaho right to be even at the meeting, let alone be living in the valley. Both tribes were now entering extreme difficult times, weak from malnutrition, plagued by bad sanitation practices resulting partly from their newly sedimentary lives. They fell victim to diphtheria, influenza, and measles. The eastern Shoshone population, according to agency figures, fell from 1,250 in 1885 to 841 in 1900, a loss of a full 32% in just a decade and a half. Northern Arapaho numbers fell from 978 to 801 over the same time, a 14.6% decrease. Measles killed 152 people in 1897 alone. At the 1891 meeting, both tribes agreed to sell 1.2 million acres of reservation land north and east of the Big Wind River, which would leave them 900,000 acres. The tribes managed to deflect a move by the government commission chairman, John Woodruff, a local rancher merchant, to include in the sale a strip of well-watered land on the south side of the river between Mill Creek and the north fork of the Poja. Money from the entire sale was to pay for schools and cattle herds for the tribal people, with the rest to be placed in interest-bearing accounts. The tribes were willing to agree to these terms as they needed money to buy food. 
They were relieved at the idea of defending a much smaller portion of land from invasion by white-owned cattle, by now a chronic problem. At this time, the demand from local and government whites to sell the land was, as historian Sam Henry Stam writes, tremendous. Persuaded perhaps by Woodruff's complaints about not getting the land he wanted, however, Congress refused to ratify the agreement. Indian Bureau officials tried again two years later, pushing for an even larger sale of 1.6 million acres, including the strip Woodruff had earlier wanted. Although the food shortages worsened each year and deadlines loomed at the end of the century when, under the 1868 treaty, government food rations would disappear entirely, both tribes nevertheless refused the deal. By mid-1890s, local whites had begun to covet the magnificent hot springs just north and downstream from the mouth of the Wind River Canyon, site of present-day Thermopolis, then the northeast corner of the reservation. The springs were producing 19 million gallons a day of hot water. Some white entrepreneurs already had dug ditches to bring the flow to tent-walled spas with names like Hotel de Sagebrush. Historian Jeffrey O. Agara writes, they wanted to develop a resort, but to do that would need title to those lands. By then, the country north of the Wind River Canyon and Owl Creek Range had little value to the tribe as its buffalo herds were now gone. James McLaughlin, veteran government negotiator with Indian tribes around the West, began talks with the Shoshone and Arapaho leaders. McLaughlin offered $50,000 for a 10 square miles, 64,000 acres of land. Both tribes were now only two years from the end of their annual food ration payments under the 18. 68 treaties. Chief Washke and Eastern Shoshones wanted cash. Chief Sharpnose and the Northern Arapaho wanted cattle and rations. McLaughlin upped the offer to $60,000 on April 21, 1896. Of the 457 men in both tribes over the age of 18, 180 Shoshone and 93 Arapahoes agreed to sign, just under the 60% of the adult male population. As part of the settlement of this agreement, there were to be upfront cash payments and cash and cattle, with the rest to come in five annual installments. Rations were to be extended five more years, but the later payments were not forthcoming, according to historian Loretta Fowler. And Washke added a single condition to the sale, that people always be allowed to bathe for free. That agreement later became part of the transfer of the land at the hot springs from the U.S. government to the state of Wyoming. Today, free swimming is available year-round at the small state bathhouse at Hot Springs State Park in Thermopolis. Swimming for a fee is available at the two larger commercial pools. At the time, Army Captain Richard Wilson, acting Indian agent at the Shone Agency, noted that the amount paid was abundantly low for the finest hot springs on earth. Equally important, the sale itself gave the presence of the northern Arapaho tribe on the Wind River and an unofficial but arid. Equally important, the sale itself gave the presence of the northern Arapaho tribe on the Wind River an unofficial but semi-permanent status it had enjoyed had not enjoyed before, a status that still had no legal basis. In 1868, the Treaty of Fort Bridger had guaranteed the Eastern Shoshone together with such other friendly tribes or individual Indians as they may be willing, with the consent of the United States to admit amongst them exclusive rights to live on the reservation lands. Now the government, of a need for expediency, was was dealing with both tribes as equal partners. Eventually, three decades later, the question would be sorted out by the U.S. Supreme Court. 
the decision which required the government compensate the Eastern Shoshone for allowing the northern Arapaho to reside on reservation lands was rendered in 1937. Congress approved the settlements in 1839. Next week, we'll continue on with the Wind River Indian Reservation, and we'll go to a, a, the story from wildhistory.org of the Reverend John Roberts, missionary to the Eastern Shoshone and northern Arapaho tribes. Thanks for joining us today, and we hope you enjoy our podcast. As per the Code of the West, we ride for the brand, and we ride for Wyoming.